Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Just a quick note before we get started. This episode contains disturbing content, including discussions of suicide. Take care while listening. In the fall of 1980, Geraldo Rivera hosted a two-part special on Lifespring for ABC's 2020. The story centered on Gail Rennick, the young woman who died after having an asthma attack in a Lifespring seminar. Geraldo sat down with Gail's father, Bill Nugent, to talk about what happened. It had only been a year since Gail died, and Bill was still suffering. You could see it on his face. Geraldo asked Bill if he believed that Lifespring killed his daughter. And Bill Nugent was clear, very clear. He told Geraldo, quote, just the same as if they'd put a gun to her temple and pulled the trigger. Geraldo also spoke to Lifespring CEO John Hanley. Now, as Hanley saw it, what happened to Gail had nothing to do with Lifespring. He told Geraldo, the training doesn't cause anything. Life causes stuff. Lifespring had a word for people like Gail. People who got hurt during a seminar and walked away from Lifespring depressed, paranoid, psychotic, suicidal, or even wound up dead. They called them casualties. Over the past nine months, I've reached out to John Hanley repeatedly, but he's never gotten back to me. There was a lot I wanted to ask him about, but mostly, I wanted to ask him about the damage Lifespring allegedly caused. The closest thing I have to a comment from him comes from one paragraph in his memoir. He wrote, quote, My argument is that the training and the unfortunate circumstance were not legally causally related. After all, do people ever have a psychotic break after graduating from Yale or Stanford or wherever? It has to happen on occasion. Did the university cause the upset that led to the breakdown? Or was the kid troubled to begin with? Did he take his trouble to school where they got exacerbated? Maybe. But is that the school's legal responsibility? I don't think so. Okay, I can understand his logic, but to me, it sounds like Hanley's saying the opposite of what he taught in his seminars. The importance of personal responsibility, of accountability, of owning our actions and our impact on the world. When I read his words, I wanted to ask Hanley what a Lifespring trainer might make of them. I wanted to sit him down and say, this sounds like a victim story. Now tell the story again like you're responsible for every detail, like you were the source of everything that happened. Tell it like it's Thursday night at the basic seminar. I wonder what he'd say. This is Good Cult, an original podcast from Cast Media. I'm River Donahue. Over these six episodes, I'm investigating the controversial seminars that defined my childhood and the man who created them, a convicted felon turned new age guru named John Hanley. But this isn't just a story about the past. By the end of our time together, I'll take you inside a seminar room where lives are still being changed and ruined to this day. You're listening to episode four, Casualties. 
Dad went on a rampage, and, and he was chasing Life Spring wherever they went. He was up at 6 in the morning and go to bed at 11. He was on their tails. He had my brother on their tails. Anybody that would listen, you know, he would call me and say, Life Spring is in San Diego at this hotel, and blah, blah, blah. Get your butt down there and bang on that door and see what's going on. Yeah, he was all over the place. Oh, he did not leave them alone. He was on them. This is Gail Rennick's sister, Cindy. After Gail died, her dad became obsessed with taking LifeSpring down. He poured almost every dollar he had into following the company around the country. He called hotels where LifeSpring was holding seminars to warn them about what was happening inside their ballrooms. He handed out flyers in cities where LifeSpring operated, telling people to stay away. He was bugging them at LifeSpring, that John Henley, like you wouldn't believe, you know. And it took over his life. It literally took over. And um, oh, how do I say this? They found things. Uh, he was being followed by LifeSpring. He was being tailed. They found a tracking device on my dad's car. And uh, he knew where it came from. I haven't been able to corroborate the claim that LifeSpring was stalking Bill and I don't know if they really put a tracking device on his car. But what I do know is this. Bill Nugent was in deep, profound pain. And he dedicated his entire life to avenging his daughter's death. My grandfather would have spent every dime he ever made and still showed up at the offices. You know, even if he was on the street, he would be in his bum street, you know, with his little sign, you know, his daughter, they killed my baby. I and mean, he was relentless. He would not have given up ever. This is Cindy's son, Scott. But unfortunately, he, he didn't learn how to um, find comfort. I don't think he ever learned how to be okay. I don't think he ever healed. My mother said he's got to understand Gail's gone. And, you know, somebody had to pay for it. And I don't mean money. Eventually, Bill filed a wrongful death lawsuit against LifeSpring. The attorney he hired to represent him, Miles Stanislaw, had gone through a LifeSpring seminar himself. He had firsthand knowledge of how LifeSpring operated. The program and the exercises would create psychological reactions in people that the LifeSpring people who were there as either volunteers or as trainers were not trained to recognize, number one, and number two, not trained to treat if the symptoms became obvious. You know, I think Gail's is a classic example of that. Here's an asthma attack by a young lady who was not, did not have access to her asthma inhaler, and there was no one there to recognize the symptoms or deal with them. After months of litigation, LifeSpring reached a settlement with Bill Nugent. As part of the agreement, Bill had to give up his crusade against LifeSpring. No more flyers, no more calls, no more speaking to reporters about his daughter's death. But the six-figure payout didn't even cover what Bill had spent chasing LifeSpring around the country. And it didn't bring him or the rest of his family any real closure. It was, um, it was just kind of watching a, a flower. You know, family was, our family was a flower, and it just it wilted after uh, Gail passed away. I mean, everything just kind of died along with her. We never forgot Gail ever. But nothing was the same. There was never gatherings like Christmas holidays, like it used to be. Never. Even after John Hanley settled the Gail Rennick case, his legal problems were far from over. In the early 1980s, Stanislaw started representing other families whose loved ones had died after going through LifeSpring. 
When David Priddle committed suicide, he left behind a wife and two kids. They filed a wrongful death suit against LifeSpring, and the company settled. In 1981, Stanislaw represented the family of Artie Barnett, who had taken a LifeSpring seminar in Portland, Oregon. One of the processes in the third-level LifeSpring training was something called the Holy Grail. And they give you an assignment that you have to accomplish. And the assignment involves confronting your worst fears. Artie Barnett's worst fear was drowning. He had never learned to swim. But for his Holy Grail assignment, a LifeSpring trainer challenged him to swim a quarter mile across the Willamette River in Portland. Halfway through, Artie Barnett drowned. Then there was Linda Smith. Her family also spoke to Geraldo for his 2020 special. After Linda took a LifeSpring seminar in Los Angeles, she fell into a deep depression. Her family checked her into a mental hospital, but it didn't help. Her experience at LifeSpring haunted her for months. One morning, Linda skipped work without calling in. She spent the day on her couch, listening to a song LifeSpring had played during her seminar over and over. When her husband came home that night, he found her lying in a pool of blood on the floor. She had shot herself in the head. When Geraldo spoke with Linda's husband, Craig, he asked the same question he had asked Gail Rennick's dad. Do you hold LifeSpring responsible for her death? Absolutely, Craig said. There's no doubt in my mind they caused it. By the mid-1980s, former trainees had filed dozens of lawsuits against LifeSpring and John Hanley. Just about all of them claimed the same thing, that the seminars left them or their loved ones with severe psychological damage. Over the years, LifeSpring paid out millions of dollars in settlement money. $295,000 to a man named Mark Gorman, $800,000 to Deborah Bingham, the list goes on. But here's the thing, the payouts worked. They kept the lawsuits out of court and for the most part, out of the public eye. Throughout the 1980s, LifeSpring just got bigger and bigger. Hey, it's River. Like you, I have a boss. And what my boss loves is when you rate, review, and subscribe to Good Cult and Apple Podcasts. Will it get me a promotion, a raise, a gentle pat on the back, and a quiet, you did it, River? Probably not, but he'll be happy, and so will I. So come on, rate, review, subscribe to Good Cult and Apple Podcasts. Thanks. Today's episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Are y'all listening to the show yet? Not right now, obviously. You're listening to Good Cult, but in your life, I mean. The Jordan Harbinger Show is one of the biggest interview podcasts right now. He's had conversations with everybody from Bill Nye to Malcolm Gladwell to Shaq. I'm scrolling through his episode list right now. It's kind of incredible. I wish Jordan would do an interview with himself about how he manages to book such an incredible variety of A-list guests. But a while back, Jordan sat down for an interview with Amanda Montell to talk about her book, Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism. And Amanda really broke down the way that cults and MLMs and high-control groups manipulate language. It made me think a lot about my own experience in these seminars and the constant stream of New Age jargon that's playing in my head at all times. Maybe I need to listen to the episode again and see what I can do about all that. But there's also an incredible interview with Leah Ramini about her experience inside Scientology that's honestly shocking. You can listen to those episodes and all the rest of them at jordanharbinger.com start. You can't go wrong with adding the Jordan Harbinger show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for... 
The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. So you've probably already heard about Cast's new investigative true crime podcast, Lost in Panama. But if you haven't caught up yet, now's the time, because new evidence and testimony has been uncovered in the more recent episodes that's shining a whole new light on the case. The first four episodes of Lost in Panama laid out everything already known about the two young women who went missing, including deep dives into the mysterious photos, the suspicious tour guide, and the remains. But episode five is where the investigation launches into a whole new direction. The Lost in Panama team meets a woman who says that the same men who killed her son are responsible for Chris and Lizanne's deaths. The woman lays out what she believes happened and how the women were abducted and killed. And amazingly, it all adds up. The pieces start to fit together and finally make sense. So as time's running out, the Lost in Panama team takes this major breakthrough and races to push the Panamanian government to admit that there's more going on here than meets the eye. The officials need to reopen the case and take a serious look at this new evidence. So the families affected can finally get closure. But will they do it? If you want to find out, you can listen to all episodes of Lost in Panama right now, wherever you get your podcasts. When the trains first started, you took medicine, you took watches. This is Betty Spruill, LifeSpring's former executive vice president. We could go all night long, all two hours of sleep. You know, we were like, no babies in here, get over it. <laughs> we thought we were doing a good thing, and we were. And LifeSpring changed. And then the whole thing started, we, we stopped appearing to be a cult to a number of people. Geraldo Rivera's 2020 episode painted LifeSpring as a destructive cult, with John Hanley as its charismatic, conniving leader. Seminar attendance plummeted so sharply that Hanley had to close down several offices across the country. LifeSpring was on the verge of collapse. So in the midst of the crisis, he called a meeting of LifeSpring's senior staff, and he put the idea to a vote. Should he stay on, or should he step down? The vote was almost unanimous. Hanley needed to stay. But he had to make some changes to address all the criticism LifeSpring was facing. That started with putting an end to the rule that allegedly led to Gail Rennick's death. And we were never a cult. And we wanted to move everything away that gave the appearance of being a cult. If you want to keep your watch, keep your watch. Make sure you have your medicine. If you want to leave before there's a break, please leave. <laughs> LifeSpring loosened up. The seminars got a little softer. And the changes didn't just rescue the company from bankruptcy. They helped push LifeSpring further into the mainstream. In 1986, 37,000 people across the country graduated from LifeSpring seminars. And Hanley started expanding operations beyond the U.S. We were doing trainings in Russia while it was the Soviet Union. Well, before the Soviet Union broke up, a lot of people had gone through the trainings. 
river people would come from miles. They would travel two and three days just to get to the training with no guarantee that they were going to get in the training. As LifeSpring opened more and more offices, more and more money kept pouring in. But John would say, he, he said, I'm a businessman. I'm here to have this as a business grow and thrive and make a contribution with people. And he wanted to make money, and he did. Made lots of money. In the 1980s, LifeSpring opened a new office in Alexandria, Virginia, right outside of D.C. It attracted the same kind of young urban professionals who were taking the seminars all across the U.S. at the time. But it also introduced LifeSpring to a new demographic, government officials. That caught the eye of Mark Fisher, a reporter at the Washington Post. It was one of these things where you don't, you've never heard of something and then all of a sudden you start hearing about it from one corner or another and it seems like it's kind of welling up as a sort of groundswell. These days, Mark is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and a senior editor at The Post. But back in 87, he was just a young reporter looking for his first big story. This was coming from people I met on my beat uh, who were administrators in the D.C. school system. Uh, It was coming from people who I met in my own life at a party or in somebody's backyard. And so I got curious about it, did a little reading about it. Mark took a closer look at Lightspring, and he found that it was particularly popular in an arm of the Pentagon called DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Administration. DARPA is responsible for developing cutting-edge technology for the military. Over the years, DARPA's worked on everything from laser-guided missiles to brain implants for soldiers to humanoid robots. I hear that this is almost an official program that DARPA is putting its top managers through, and that really sucked me in. That, that, whoa, here's a very sensitive, confidential, top-secret arm of the United States government that is buying into, literally, that is paying for people to take this private training that comes from this very controversial background. The more Mark learned about LifeSpring, the more suspicious he got. LifeSpring's whole model looked an awful lot like a multi-level marketing scheme. In order to move up and get to the secret information, the real secret sauce of the whole operation, you have to not only pay more money, but bring more people in. And so the more people you bring in, you get discounts, you get other incentives, and you get to push your way up the pyramid all the way up to the top, always bringing in more and more people. Mark reached out to LifeSpring and asked if he could sit through a seminar as an observer. A week or two later, he was put in touch with John Hanley, who had a deal for him. He'd let Mark into a seminar room. But if Mark really wanted to understand LifeSpring, he had to actually go through it as a participant. He couldn't just stand on the sidelines and watch people have life-changing transformations. Mark had to be transformed. John Hanley, the owner of the company, trusted and knew his training and thought that I would get something out of it, and uh, that if I went into it with an open mind and open heart, that it would improve me, and, uh, and that he was sure he'd get a great story out of it. John Hanley was right. It did make for a great story, just not the story Hanley wanted to tell. It was tremendously entertaining. It was a little scary just how much control he had over everyone, 200 people in a room. Uh, from the first minutes of the first night. On a Wednesday night in 1987, 
Mark Fisher found himself standing in a ballroom at the Quality Inn Hotel on Capitol Hill, surrounded by 220 complete strangers. His seminar leader was a guy named Jim Cook. He was an extraordinary talent. He had a great stage presence, great authority, great storytelling ability, very dramatic kind of presentation. He could be really stern. He could be a forgiving father. He played all these different roles, even as he was dressed in this conservative suit and presenting himself as uh, the one person in the room who really knew what the training was and what it could give you and how it could liberate you. Over the next five days, Mark watched Cook and the LifeSpring staff lead his group through the ups and downs of the basic training. The mingle, the junkyard process, the red-black game. But Mark never had the kind of emotional breakthrough John Hanley hoped he would. It was actually the opposite. I mean, at no point did I feel, oh, this is really cool, or oh, I'd really like to devote myself to this, or this guy's really wise and I want to follow him. I, I was disturbed on behalf of the people around me. Okay, look, Mark's about to talk for a while. Now, normally I paraphrase a lot of this, but he's the one with the Pulitzer, so I'm just gonna let him roll. People were crying, people were doubled over in, in just pain over what they were admitting about themselves. The deepest secrets about having cheated on their spouse or abused their child or done something dishonest at work. I mean, really deep secrets. And this was, you know, encouraged hour after hour deep into the night. And then the whole program pivots. And after a couple, three days of tearing people down like that, to the point that almost everyone has had that kind of cathartic moment, and people have come to trust these strangers. Then the trainer starts taking advantage of that trust and building a new community. And you're being told and taught that it's these strangers around you and the people in LifeSpring whom you can trust and not the people you grew up with, the people who love you, the people who pay your salary and so on. Then I started seeing not just that power that was evident from the first hours, but that control that became evident over the course of the training, over several days. They were giving up all of their guardrails, all of their skepticism and cynicism, and taking this on whole and giving themselves entirely over to this product that John Hanley was making millions on. After Mark's seminar ended, he watched his fellow participants turn into salespeople overnight, recruiting everyone they knew into LifeSpring. To Mark, they had clearly been roped into a multi-level marketing scheme. Of course, they didn't see it that way. They saw it as uh, the people around them just don't get it. Now, that's one of the key uh, stock phrases of LifeSpring. People who aren't in... With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In the program, don't get it. 
that's repeated hundreds of times like over the course of the whole program. So that's in their heads. So when they go home and their children, parents, siblings, cousins, friends, neighbors are skeptical or worse or think, hey, you've been taken for a ride or you've been brainwashed or all those kinds of reactions, the natural fallback for people who've been for the program is you don't get it. You need to do the program. After the seminar, Mark kept digging into LifeSpring's history. He poured over mountains of court records and slowly uncovered everything that LifeSpring had tried to bury over the years. Well, I started hearing rumors and then facts about people who had gone through the training and had really devastating results. As, as I started uh, hearing about and, and looking into the court records uh, of these cases that ended in deaths, I thought, how is this program still operating? Mark had just about everything he needed to write his story. But he was still missing one final piece, an interview with John Hanley himself. His attitude toward me was that I was somehow going to, uh, surely I must have loved the training, and surely I would see that this was something that would benefit society. A few weeks after taking his seminar, Mark Fisher flew across the country and drove to a nondescript LifeSpring office in Northern California to sit down with John Hanley face-to-face and confront him with everything he'd learned about the dark side of LifeSpring. When I started asking him about some dark chapters of his own past, as well as some of the devastating impacts of LifeSpring, he seemed genuinely surprised. At first, Hanley tried to downplay all the accusations against LifeSpring, and then he got defensive. When I confronted him with details of the various casualties of LifeSpring, details which he surely knew quite extensively, he would either pretend to be surprised by some of them or would be tremendously dismissive of them. He would either attack the people who had been hurt by uh, the program and say that they had previous problems or that they had been led astray by relatives who meant them no good, or he would say that um, they should have known better, that uh, they had problems, mental problems, and that uh, they should never have taken the training and that they were sufficiently warned, that they were extensively warned, uh, and they should never have been there in the first place. There was one thing that stood out to Mark about John Hanley, more than anything else. John Hanley is a, a master salesman. I mean, he he's just so good, so smooth, so persuasive about what he does And he presents himself as someone who is serious about the academic foundation for his product. He's got all kinds of jargon about humanistic psychology and gestalt therapy and all of that. He had taken some psychology. Actually, I think he had taken one psychology course uh, in which he got a D. But he was a born salesman. Mark spent three and a half months working on a story about LifeSpring. And on October 25th, 1987, the Washington Post finally published it under the headline, I Cried Enough to Fill a Glass. I don't think there had been one comprehensive piece that brought together all of these allegations, all of these incidents, the history of LifeSpring. A few weeks later, Hanley sent the Post a letter threatening to sue the paper for libel. Mark was dragged into the office of executive editor Ben Bradley. 
Now, Ben Bradley oversaw the Post's Watergate investigation. He's this massive figure in journalism. And now Mark was standing in front of him and a lawyer from the Post named Carol Melamed to defend his article. He was terrified. There I was, 27 years old, pretty new to the Post, my first really big story. And it has elicited a letter that has gotten me in a meeting in the executive editor's office with the chief counsel for the company. Not a comfortable or fun situation. And so I'm sitting there, I've got all my documents, I know I've got everything right, but nonetheless, it's an unnerving situation to be in as the lawyer is ticking off each of these allegations by LifeSpring, and Bradley is sitting there silently listening to these things one after another, and as I'm beating them down, he's kind of nodding a little bit, I think maybe he's on my side, but on the other hand, you know, he's Ben Bradley, and he's the toughest guy in the room, if not in the business. And so finally, when he up and says, Carol, this is fly shit on pepper, you know, a sigh of relief doesn't begin to describe what I felt. The Post stood by Mark's reporting. They sent a letter back to LifeSpring's lawyers, acknowledging that the story misstated the dollar amount of a few settlements, but that otherwise it was completely accurate. If somebody sends you a letter making allegations of errors, you have to respond to it. It's the only fair thing to do. But we knew that sending them the letter would give them the ammunition to say, hey, we got this letter and, uh, you know, it shows that we were right or, or something like that. Because, you know, not, not many people are going to actually take the time to read the letter. Uh, they'll just tout it as some sort of a concession by the Post, which it was not. It's funny to hear that side of the story from Mark. Because here's how John Hanley wrote about that same letter in his book. Quote, We went through that article and there were over a hundred out-and-out mistakes. We tried to fight back. We went round and round as lawsuits will. We finally got a letter from the editor-in-chief Ben Bradley, admitting that the Washington Post had made errors. In exchange, we agreed to drop the lawsuit. In any case, Mark's article dealt an almost fatal blow to LifeSpring. After it came out, seminar attendance plummeted. Hanley's company began to spiral. I was told later on that they went through a pretty rough period following the story, that uh, they they lost uh, some customers, that uh, some of their offices may have been shut down. By the early 90s, LifeSpring was floundering. John Hanley started dipping into his own savings to keep the company afloat, and LifeSpring continued to limp along for a few more years. But by the end of the decade, it was back on the verge of bankruptcy. Hanley couldn't figure out a way to turn it around, so he decided he had to put LifeSpring out of its misery. In 1998, after almost three decades at the top of LifeSpring, Hanley shut the company down and walked away. And that was the end of LifeSpring. Or so I thought. As I was finishing up my reporting, I stumbled across something strange. A personal growth seminar company in Los Angeles called Mastery in Transformational Training, or MITT. MITT's Yelp page was full of one-star reviews. Stuff like, Warning, psychologically damaging, and They brainwashed my wife, and Avoid, 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 MITT is a cult. I came across an article by a journalist who had gone through MITT himself. It opens with a description of him doing an exercise that sounded identical to the mom-dad dyad. He also did the victim process, and the junkyard process, and then he talked about how MITT has three levels of seminars, the basic, the advanced, the legacy program. It all sounded strangely familiar. 
that's when I discovered that LifeSpring never actually disappeared. In 1998, as John Hanley was closing down his company, he crossed paths with an old LifeSpring participant named Margot Maggi. The two of them made a deal. Hanley sold her the rights to LifeSpring seminars and gave her everything she needed to start her own seminar company. The only thing Margot changed was the name. She called it MITT. And here's the thing. LifeSpring is long gone. My family's seminar company, Wings, has faded away, but MITT is still going. They're still putting on Hanley's seminars right now, just a short drive from my house in LA. As I was reading up on MITT, I found a few posts about it on a website called the Cult Education Forum. There was one in particular that stood out to me. It was written by a woman named Robin. She wrote, quote, My daughter tried to kill herself immediately after she left the LA MITT program. She drove to New York and jumped into the East River at four in the morning in April of last year. A police officer happened to be driving by and saw her. She was hospitalized for hypothermia and then in the psych ward for a month. She's not a depressed, suicidal person and historically, so it just shocked me. I reached out to Robin to see if she could tell me a little bit more about what happened to her daughter, Julia. She got back to me right away. It's at the very least, it's a horrible Ponzi scheme and it's just for defrauding people. And at worst, it can really mess you up for life. Talking to Robin, I couldn't help but think about Gail Rennick's dad, Bill. 40 years later, history was repeating itself. Robin was just one more parent furious at these seminars for what they'd done to their child. Well, would you say that what happened at MIT caused Julia's breakdown? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely 100% the cause of it. Absolutely. By the time I discovered MITT, I'd spent months trying to understand John Hanley's seminars. I'd read his memoir cover to cover, did more than a dozen interviews, and dug through a mountain of lawsuits. I'd learned a lot, but I didn't know how to feel. It was still hard for me to accept that the seminars that hurt so many people were the same ones that changed my parents' lives, and my life, too. I took my last seminar when I was 19, more than 10 years ago. Now, thanks to MITT, I had an opportunity to go back. I thought maybe that would finally strip away the magic and let me see the seminars for what they really are. Dangerous, exploitative, emotionally manipulative. I thought maybe it would give me some clarity, or at least a sense of closure. So one day in April, I called MITT and I signed up for the basic seminar myself. A few months later, I walked into a seminar room for the first time since I was a kid. But when I walked out, I was more confused than ever. I met this amazing guy called River that is finally coming into a zone and realizing that he has something to give to the world because that's what you actually did. You're listening to Good Cult, an original podcast from Cast Media. I'm River Donahue. Next time, I'm going back inside the seminars that changed my family's lives to see if they still work on me, even after everything I've learned. Good Cult is written by me, River Donahue, with help from Drew Schwartz. It's executive produced by Colin Thompson and produced by me and Drew with a last-minute assist from Trey Schiltz. Good Cult was edited by Anton Doty and Jordan Cantor and mixed by Anton. The original score was composed by Spencer Fox and Sam Hendricks. Robert Beatty made our cover art and Katie Way fact-checked for us. Legal review by Ted Gertis. 
Special thanks this episode to Sarah Connor at San Diego State University. Good Cult is a cast original production. The fame thing isn't really real, you know? And don't forget, I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. Well, I'm actually a boy standing in front of a microphone asking a bunch of strangers I don't know to rate, review, and subscribe to Good Cult and Apple Podcasts, but, you know, it's pretty much the same thing. Oh, one more thing. If you're familiar with Cast's other investigative podcast, The Opportunist, then you'll have a good sense of what future seasons of Good Cult will look like. I'll be digging into other cult-like groups and telling the stories of people on the inside, like I'm telling my own right now. So, come on, make sure you subscribe so you'll be ready for the next season. I just gotta go ahead and make it first, so guess I'll get back to work. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.